Hello, everybody. So today is Sunday, March 10th, and we are bringing you Block Digest number 163 at block height 566,501. So what is crackalacking, you oversleeping degenerates of the world? Oh, man. I don't know. Yeah, it's just daylight savings. I don't know what it is, but it always screws you up. I mean, I even set all the clocks forward on the oven and the microwave, got up early. I still kind of feel out of it. How are you doing today, Janine? It's a, I, yeah, it's a really stupid concept, but thankfully I'm not in a place that still adheres to that as far as I know, or I have to check. I don't, I don't think it adheres to it, but yeah, daylight saving sucks. <laughs> yeah, it seems like every time it comes around now, everybody talks about how we need to get rid of this thing because it just causes a bunch of trouble. <laughs> so yeah, that would be nice. Let's just, uh, let's just stick to a time and work with it. Yeah, you guys should get your shit together. I can't believe you. You cannot, cannot figure out, cannot, cannot organize your things because of the daylight savings. It's a shame. Okay. <laughs> Blame the farmers. Time is an illusion. Time <laughs> doubly so. Yeah. All right. So yeah, time isn't an illusion on this. We got a lot to get through in a short amount of time here. So let's go, jump right into it, man. What's the first story here? Nope, that's it. I'm drunk. I'm just going to bullshit. Fuck the news. <laughs> yeah, this uh, daylight savings caused enough of a hubbub to where uh got to crack a beer, I guess. That's all right. <laughs> it's afternoon, thanks to daylight savings. Mm -hmm. All righty, though. So uh, first up, I guess, is a few new updates uh, regarding the Quadriga X situation. So first of all, um, Business Insider um, on the 6th published an article initially claiming that the laptop of the Quadriga CX CEO had been cracked. And this was a completely false story. It's just somebody somewhere fucked up very bad fact-checking and pretty much conflated um ernst and young finding air quote cold storage addresses on the chain that were empty with them cracking the laptop but in reality all they did was take possession of it and absolutely no progress as of right now has been made as far as actually decrypting it and like we went over last time the air quote uh cold storage addresses that Ernst & Young found are in, in no way uh, possibly the supposed funds 
that Quadriga claimed they actually had custody of because it was literally only a tenth of the 20-something thousand coins they should have um, at the fullest that those addresses had ever been in their history on the chain. But there's also been um, an interview with Jesse Powell from Kraken uh, by Decrypt Media that has actually, uh, at least from what I've seen following this since it started, uh, a number of new facts uh, regarding Quadriga and th their operations, as well as just um, some of Jesse's opinions on previous facts that have been revealed. And so, um, first of all, what I think is a giant, like, red alarm is apparently the entire platform was being maintained by a single developer, Alex Hannon. And the co-founder of Quadriga, uh, Michael Patron, literally um, left a review on Hannon's LinkedIn page saying, our competitors required teams in order to replicate the work of this one man. So he, he was literally bragging that their entire exchange had a single developer who designed and maintained the platform. And that that is just absolute craziness. Like for an example to compare to Kraken, which Jesse goes into in this interview, Kraken has more than 100 developers working on their exchange. Like the, the, the notion that you can maintain a system that is going to involve securely managing your cryptocurrency, reconciling that with internal balance databases for your customers, tying all of this into an order matching engine that needs to maintain backups of all of its state at all times, or you, you pretty much risk just completely losing track of who has what funds on your platform, which is an unbelievable clusterfuck on a platform like this. Like if you lose track of your users' balances, then you effectively have zero basis on or as far as like deciding who is entitled to what funds during withdrawal process and, and crediting processes. Like that is absolute insanity. And to go one step further, as far as backing up the state of exchange records, it was only done once an hour. So literally, all it takes is one fuck up, one crash, and if it doesn't happen exactly after the hourly backup is made, they have just lost track of their customers' balances. Like, other, pretty much every other exchange in this space is doing real-time backups. An order is placed, that's immediately tossed in a backup. A user's balance is changed, that is instantly tossed into a backup as the primary database is updated in real time. Because if you lose track of that information, you have just lost the ability to function as a custodial business. Like tracking your user's balances and what is going on on your platform and your order book is just as, if not no, not more so, but it is absolutely just as important as actually properly securing your cryptocurrency. Because it doesn't matter if you have that money, 
you're fucked if you don't know whose money is what. Like that is absolutely core requirement for running a business like this. So just the, the way that this exchange was operated was a complete incompetent shit show. Now, as well, this 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 next one is a, a previous um, known fact, but there, there's an aspect, at least I, I was not aware of until this interview. Uh, Quadriga CX lost $14 million in the parody multi-sig bug, the oops, I, I, I killed it incident that locked up a gigantic amount of Ethereum in now broken multi-sig wallets. And apparently... Uh, this developer, Hannon, was one of the people in the GitHub issue threads trying to push support for actually forking to redeem and free up funds in, in these broken smart contracts. And so, like this right here is showing that despite losing this money, they did not attempt to take any kind of financially oriented solution to the situation. They did not attempt to stack up their own profits to pay people back. They did not eat the loss and then try to make users whole. They were very likely simply just praying that Ethereum would fork to recover these funds and very likely took no other action in order to address the issue of $14 million of user funds disappearing. And given the fact that we have seen uh, evidence suggesting that funds were moving in very large amounts back and forth between Quadriga and other exchanges, it's not unlikely that they attempted to actually trade themselves out of that hole instead of simply taking that loss themselves to make users whole over time. So not only was the exchange on a technical level just ran by a uh, a complete incompetent, you know, group of people and attitude, but on a business side as well, if what this information indicates is, is what actually happened, just the, their business management side of handling this business was just completely and utterly absurd. And Really, the, the next thing that Jesse goes on to talk about, obviously, is the kind of suspicious nature of uh, Cotton's death in India, as well as the, the timing of leaving all of his assets to his wife, Jennifer Robertson. And really, honestly, there's nothing new here except that no autopsy was performed on the body. But, you know, given that it, it, it's it's... Definitely possible that something could have been faked here, but it's still, I think, somewhat unlikely that multiple governmental authorities could be completely defrauded in a situation like this. Now, the, the next aspect is, is something I have been waiting a little bit to cover just because of what I think is, is some ambiguity as far as the accuracy of these assertions. But uh, a number of people have been speculating lately that the co-founder of Quadriga CX, Michael Patron, is actually uh, Omar uh, Danani, somebody who was actually convicted in the United States and served time in a federal prison for... A, being part of an identity theft ring. Uh, 
And looking at the, these two pictures of these individuals side by side, I mean, it is very unlikely they are not the same person. Like, you, they, they would literally need to just be completely unrelated doppelgangers. Like, they have the same facial structure, the same ears. There are even identifiable dimples on the, on the, the forehead in both of these individual pictures. And really the thing that kind of drives it home for me is that this person, Omar Danani, has operated under multiple pseudonyms in the past, one of which was Omar Patron, the last name of the Quadriga CX CEO. And so really the only response this person has made to these allegations is to say he is not this person and that he had not been working at Quadriga CX for three years now. Although I have seen no corroborating evidence at all to back up the fact that he has not been involved in this company for three years. And th this is just in combination with the, the lack of funds being available the way that this business was operated by a single individual, the poor business practices, the fact that if Michael Patron is actually Omar Danani, which I think personally is very likely, that this exchange was co-founded by somebody guilty of committing identity fraud in the past. Um, Jesse goes on to speculate in his last comment that it's potential that this entire exchange was effectively set up as a front for money laundering which is also another thing that Omar Danani has made. Um, he, he's pretty much stated that he is very good at doing so in, in the past in relation to his identity theft charges. And so, like, I, I, I'm still at the point here where the, the whole theory of Cotton faking his death and running off with money, I mean, there there's nothing changed in terms of information to prove or disprove that i'm not going to completely discount it out of hand but looking at all of the information that is available now versus when that theory was originally formed i am thinking it is much more likely that cotton actually did die like stress is something that can very much exacerbate things like Crohn's disease. And there is a slew of circumstantial information to suggest that other people were involved in the removal or the, just the non-existence of those funds in the first place. And the last thing is there's actually indications of accounts set up on the exchange under different pseudonyms that were used to withdraw money from Quadriga to other exchanges. And so this to me right now is looking more and more like people in the company other than the CEO, Mr. Cotton, were actually involved in whatever fraudulent or illegal activity led to this exchange pretty much being insolvent. Wow, man, it just keeps developing, doesn't it? I mean, like uh, like you're saying, I mean, yeah, the stress could have certainly, you know, gotten that guy in a bad place to where he actually did pass away. But, I mean, yeah, kind of like, a, you know, this co-founder being like a 
part of an identity theft ring. I mean, kind of makes me wonder, you know, speculate, like maybe this guy got in with this, you know, agenda of like, hey, we're going to, you know, pay off the right, maybe this one single developer and, you know, we're going to get this founder over someplace and he's going to disappear. And I mean, I'm going to change my identity. I mean, I don't know. The whole situation stinks. I mean, going like to like you're saying, one developer to run the exchange, hourly backups instead of real time and doing some possible buybacks to try and earn back customer funds like we saw with Mt. Gox and the way that played out. I mean, you know, it's terrible practices like this that are leading to some of these heavy handed regulations, I think, coming down. I mean, you know, we didn't see some of the news, you know, about uh, some of this stuff going on in Canada till recently. And, you know, it might have a lot to do with this exchange. And, um, you know, this is just this is the way of the past. Like things got to evolve to a way where people can, if they are working on a third party platform, at least that platform kind of be held to some best practices to make sure those customer funds are safe and protected. Cause yeah, we've had a uh, too many instances like this or too many exit scams. It's just uh we need to get past this first generation of exchanges that are just uh, you know, there's no rules set in place to where people just create it and go and whatever works works. So yeah, it's a it's a mess there though. I mean, like no part like you you had to bring in other people just to help in the maintenance and development of a wallet. Like, could you even imagine trying to operate and build out infrastructure for an exchange all by yourself? Yeah, you know, I think it should be easier actually because <laughs> plug and play. I mean, come on, it's just a web server that that's also has a very an AP, a low Bitcoin level wallet functionality, plus a lot of things those people can interact with. It's, it's just web development. But... Oh, no, 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 the order, the order matching engine, dude, like that, you need to have a completely atomic matching engine interacting with your database of user balances with zero margin for error of something on the matching engine not being atomic with a database update operating at extremely low latency yeah that seems easy but i'm not sure what's what what's the difficulty with that atomic operations are quite well done in Many different programming languages, many different concepts. I, I, I don't I don't understand what's the difficulty, seriously. Because you have to optimize for extremely low latency and like just a single fuck up that loses track of people's balances and now you don't know who has what money. You like your business cannot continue to operate them. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's it's hard to fuck up like that. I I, I really don't I, I really don't know. I mean come on, it's just an exchange, it's just a web web page. It's nothing special. We are doing this since the early two thousands. All right, no par, I'm going to challenge you to create your own exchange engine. <laughs> 
And then plug that, yeah, plug that into the Wasabi hardware wallet, and then boom, yeah, exchange coin joins on a hardware. <laughs> like, did you? They're like, we're gonna just run the market. Yeah, we cannot. They say that's risky from a regulatory point of view. <laughs> yeah. All right. Any more comments on this before we move on, though? I mean, just that this is like the Coinbase thing. It's another example of the hazards of giving your personally identifiable information to these exchanges. Even one, like, I mean, as far as I could tell, Quadriga was, I mean, Canada has regulations around banks, even crypto banks. Maybe it's not as strict as other places or something, but they were a regulated exchange as far as I'm aware. And this completely, you know, that they completely missed this. So the idea that being a regulated exchange protects you against people like this, especially people who are skilled at, you know, moving countries, trying to erase the trail of their history. Like this stuff is going to happen at any, ex this thing could happen at any exchange that is collecting thousands of people's identity documents, which is why like I'm, you know, people like to say, oh, you know, KYC is about preventing risk. And it's like, well, KYC in itself is also a risk. The risk is just shifted to the customer instead. Um, so that's why I don't like participating in services like that because every single service that I use with those conditions requires me to put myself at risk to people that I don't know who may pass that information on to who God knows who, including someone who apparently you know could be involved in an identity theft ring. Um, I'm surprised, I would be surprised if more exchanges don't have this issue and that they're not giant honeypots for these people. So yeah, this, this should scare people. I hope it scares people and people should change what they're, what businesses they're deciding to work with. Mm -hmm. All right. So no para what? Does Chainalysis have to say about whales? Yes, it, it really seems like I'm going to Chainalysis similar every, every time when they do one. So you might even can call me a Chainalysis guy. <laughs> so th this one was about, this one was about not really the traditional Chainalysis things, or maybe this is the traditional Chainalysis things, they were examining the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh, who has a lot of money and what he's doing with that? So it's it's really nice to have this because, well, uh, yeah, I have to say that there was no term, it, there was no methodology discussed, but. I mean, Chainalysis is a trustworthy company, right? So we, we can, if, if anyone can figure these things out, then it might be them, uh, let's say. Uh, the other thing I want to, to mention, what's missing from it is that uh, they, they just didn't drop names. They didn't drop company names. They didn't drop individual names. Well, of course, 100%, they know exactly who, who are the most I mean, yeah, that's 
quite interesting information, but they just didn't drop names. So they, they were just talking in statistics. So how I wanted to to talk about this is was in a in a more interactive way because it's it's something that that we can all, all guess on. So I ask a question, you guys answer, and I tell you that none of you figured it out because because you're all wrong and this is the right answer. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So a couple of definitions. Veil, they'll define veil as 15,000 or more Bitcoin. So they were looking at all the veils they could find who has 15,000 or more Bitcoin. And this was entities and individuals. So write what are, okay, entities are companies and individuals. So, so, so an exchange would be a veil. They don't count the users of an exchange. The exchange is a, is an entity. Anyway, uh, they were looking at Bcash too, and they, they said 30,000 or more Bcash. So I'm not sure why they, why they doubled the number for, for a veil definition, but because yeah. it's worth dog shit. Okay, whatever. Yeah, I, yeah I, can I, can I just point something out? Like, let's say yeah. the Bitcoin price is war is or was about three thousand uh, dollars per Bitcoin at the time they did the survey. Did you say that they classify a whale as having fifteen thousand Bitcoin? Because that's like yes, it's that's, Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin. Yeah, that, that's like tens of millions of dollars. They consider someone a whale only if they have tens of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. Makes sense to me. I mean, I would put it lower than that, but. <laughs> uh, well, yes, that's, that's, that's pretty much what they did. I remember in 2013, there were some data on Roger having four, 40,000 Bitcoin or something like that. Anyway, that was self-reported. So I think that should be a fine number. Anyway, uh, I go further. And one more thing about the definitions is that Satoshi is not included because they couldn't figure out which coins he owns <laughs> because you know, he, he, he didn't move. He mined and then he didn't move them. So it just, uh, they, they, they just cannot be sure. Yeah. So first question, how many entities hold Bitcoin? Like how many humans and companies hold Bitcoin? What, what would you, what would you say? Ones that are whales or in general, how many total hold Bitcoin? In general, how many? Yeah, in general. Uh, oh, God. Um, I mean, it's easily, it must be at least tens of millions of people. I was going to say between about 150 million. Well, depending on whether or not they're counting people just using custodial things. I mean, tens of millions or hundreds. Well, then tens of millions. 
All right, 22 million. Oh, I was way off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you guys were actually guessing quite right. All right, that was, that was good. So next question, how many entities control 96% of all Bitcoins? Well, so it's, I probably it's shouldn't answer because I think I saw the answer to this question. So you guys guess. <laughs> Less than a thousand. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, I think I've seen something about 4% of all users or something control 96% of the fund. So 4% of. Three. Yes. 3% three, actually. Yeah, that's a small number, but. Yeah. Three percent control, ninety-six percent of all bitcoins. What's the raw but, number on that, though? Uh, sorry. What's the raw number on that? I'm too lazy to do math. Yeah, yeah. Let's not go into that because that's that's everything else what they were talking about. So let, let's just go with the flow. So why this is not that bad because it it also counts ex exchanges so it's just bitcoins being centralized in places so that's not great but it's not like three uh, percent of individuals would control most of the bitcoins uh yeah so so it's mostly exchanges right darknet markets what else was there yeah, some kind of services. Okay, three more questions left. How many entities control? How many individuals control 21% of all Bitcoins? Wait. This is a uh, fun. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I fucked up. I fucked up. Yeah, it's just how many entities control control twenty one percent. So, so how many of these entities exactly? But you know, we was asking. It's forty nine. So they counted forty nine. Whereas, that's that's everything they were doing. But most of them are exchanges. All right. Uh, almost the last question. 28 largest individual how many how much do they control of all bitcoins in percentage so 28 individuals these are individuals how many percentage do they control these are the biggest ones at least a quarter or more yeah i'm gonna go with that that sounds about right Janine, 28 people, how many Bitcoins do they control? Um, again, I think I saw the answer to this question, so I'm not going to answer. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay. So they control. They control 5% of all Bitcoins. Well, we're doing way better than I thought. I could have got that right, man. I just followed your quarter. I was thinking about five, ten percent. I don't know. 
<laughs> All right. So this is done from 2017 to from 9% to 5%. Uh, 39 individuals to 28 individuals. Now, it would be really interesting to figure out who the heck they are, but of course, we, of course, they don't, they, they respect their privacy, so they don't uh, tell data. So, how yeah, do... I'm, I'm sure the reason is that they respect their privacy and not just because they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Or they could get sued or something. I mean, like, gee, I don't know. It seems like you could bring a lawsuit if you're that kind of whale and some company tries to come up against you like that. You could cause them headaches. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I think if they would, would talk about, hey, these guys are the largest holders in Bitcoin, uh, while some people would be really pissed off and not not as a public but as the people who were exposed to be the largest holders you might don't want to make them enemies right no definitely not okay so how they interpreted it is that early adopters are cashing out but slowly and they don't cash out all of that uh, so they are committed to the ecosystem they don't seem to want to, to sell it. Uh, and the last question is, this is going to be a difficult one. Which coin has more wealth concentration, Bitcoin or Bcash? Bcash. Yeah, Bcash. Wow, how, how did you get all the right answer? Who would have thought that? <laughs> Yeah, that was a, that was definitely the easiest one. I like that one. Well, if here's the question though, if if Bcash ownership is more concentrated, that means that uh, Bcash is is more likely a Ponzi scheme, right? <laughs> yeah, that that means that exactly. So. 24 Bcash will control 11% of all Bcash. Uh, all right, a couple of more things. Two criminal wells were identified. No, they identified three before, a couple of uh, weeks ago, but then uh, one of the criminal wells uh, are not whale anymore, so they don't include it here. Uh, they hold over 100,000 Bitcoin. They are not price or liquidity risk because they cannot cash out because of New York customer exchanges. Uh, one of them uh, made their money on the Silk Road. The other one made his money. Uh, they didn't say where he made his money, but uh, he, he cashed out first from BTCA to, to, to Bitcoin. I, I'm not quite sure what that means. Anyway, BTCA was a Bitcoin exchange. Uh, they probably didn't make their money there anyway. And 407,000 Bitcoin uh, trading whales, miners, exchanges, etc. They are also not impacting the price, but rather investing when the price goes down which stabilizes 
so they are buying money but buying bitcoin when the price goes down so we like we should like uh trading things because they buy because they pump the they give floor i don't know okay nine early adopter veil uh over 200,000 Bitcoin. They have over 200,000 Bitcoin. They sell in rallies. They seem to be more committed to this ecosystem because they don't sell all the money. So since 2017, they were the ones who, who sold sold most of the, the coins. And that concentration is decreasing since 2017. Trading volume is seven times greater Early adopters are being replaced by traders. That's it. That's all. Interesting statistics. Yeah, that's pretty interesting in the way that it does sort of show the way that the concentration of Bitcoin is kind of sparsing out. And yeah, just kind of interesting also in the idea of like looking at the Bcash thing and trying to say like, yeah, you know, this is a good way to measure that there's just like, you know, it's a small pool of people controlling the supply or the market. And, uh, you know, maybe regulators can take positions based on that. I mean, I like the fact that they're not giving out any names or anything like that. But I certainly uh, I imagine they're probably doing something with this information. I mean, they're working at it. I mean, I don't know. These all these uh, chain analytic and chain analysis and companies like that, I mean, if they're going to put out a webinar or something, I imagine it's going to be something non-controversial. This is, I mean, last one, I, I don't remember what it was, but I'm trying to remember last one where they weren't they covering like mixing services and stuff like that. I remember you got suspended the last they time. Covering, they were covering the two or three uh, criminal veil. Yeah, they were diving into that. So it's basically a zooming out of that picture yeah well yeah it's good to hear and good to get some information on what they're looking at especially whenever it's uh some statistics that'll be good to bring to people where they're always telling me like oh well, you know everybody like there's just like this uh small group of people that control the supply i mean like yeah there's large market makers but it's not like that so i mean uh what is five percent of bitcoin is like uh some of these major whales like holding a large supply that's uh it's relatively small you know what's interesting is that uh, a lot of many of the times people come with statistics and i cannot count the times that people have linked to reddit the richest bitcoin addresses with the title that these are the biggest bitcoin wallets right which is just so stupid but this is how they they do that but if someone has a chance to get that right uh, that might be chain analysis i think Mm -hmm. Alrighty though, we ready to slide along? You're on the wrong mic there. <laughs> You're getting some echo feedback on that one. There's no such thing as a wrong mic. All right, so let's move along. I guess uh, Janine, you are up with the Bitcoin Topia update. I think uh, we've all been waiting for this one for a while. Yes. So yeah, this is a story we've covered probably more than anyone else. Like it actually hasn't gotten that much press that I've seen, especially when we were initially covering it. Um, so we initially reported on a guy named Morgan Raccoons, 
uh, who is not exactly popular for this reason, but he's known by a number of people for, you know, doing a lot of scams, like asking for money or loans or whatever on Twitter, uh, or saying like, I'll take your money and I'll trade it and then I'll give you more money. And then he never, you know, keeps those promises and people end up losing money when they interact with him. And that's, this has happened on a number of occasions, um, at least since uh, 2015. Um, but we covered uh, when he was arrested for money laundering and other related charges on February, in February, 2018, last year in episode 82. And then we then talked to Chris Rice Crypto in episode 114, because he had briefly worked on the Bitcoin Topia project, which was, Basically, Morgan saying, I'm going to build a Bitcoin utopia in the middle of, uh, where was it again? I don't even remember what the area ah. was. Nevada. Um, yeah, so he basically claimed that he had bought a bunch of acres of land. And he was like tweeting pictures and he had a website where you could like sign up to buy this land and even buy a house, uh, a tiny house that was made. Uh, apparently, they were going to make it out of um you know, recycled materials and all of this. And then, you know, he started tweeting pictures of the actual, what was actually on the land and making a big deal out of it, even though it was only a tent with a, literally a trench he dug with a shovel around it. And it was really not impressive, but all the pictures were like utopia and all of this, um, but it turned out to be a scam. And they made a bridge throwing sticks in the water. Right, that two by four. Yeah. That that was some heavy wood lifting. Yeah. Um, so Chris Rice Crypto noticed a number of red flags early on when he uh, when he was part of the project, and then he ended up leaving, or rather, he was publicly fired, uh, and then he decided to leave because he was getting, you know, acute, various allegations were being made about him by Morgan as like a defensive tactic uh, for being called out on the scam. And then in episode number 140, uh, I did an update on that story where he was arrested in October 2018 related to Bitcointopia as a land fraud scheme. And I provided a list of all of these prior episodes in a tweet uh, from the Block Digest account that's in the video description. Uh, and then the recent update to this whole fiasco is that the San Diego Union tribute, uh, tribute uh, is it Tribune or Tribute? I didn't actually check. <laughs> Um, anyway, San Diego news outlet reported two days ago that Morgan has pled guilty to wire fraud for selling land that he did not own and also for conducting an unlicensed uh, money transmitter business, which was the first thing that he was arrested for. And then obviously it was really stupid of him to then cook up a land fraud scheme while he was on parole for the first one. Um, according to the plea agreement that was reported in the article, there were at least 10 people who sent him money for land, which, as it turns out, it was owned by the federal government. Uh, we went over the discrepancies in how much land he was claiming to own versus the land that uh, he actually owned. I think it was less than five acres uh, total that he actually had some kind of, you know, le legitimate control over. Um, and in total, apparently these 10 or so people sent about $45,000 and, uh, he 
he will be facing up to 20 years in prison on the wire fraud charge and up to five years in prison on the money transmitting charge. Rocky Raccoon checked into his room only to find Gideon's Bible. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is one of those things where it's like uh, we were talking about. It. I don't like all the we called it or anything like that, but I mean, we certainly warned everybody about what was going on. And uh, I remember, I think I'm nearly certain that Morgan actually watched some of our episodes on it because I know that he blocked me shortly after we talked to Rice Crypto, and you know, uh, Rice came on to talk about it and. Yeah, it's one of those things where I guess it's good to see like at least some sort of a level of justice for that level of fraud because it was pretty gross. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think he probably only watched the first episode that we did on it, which was all the way back in February of last year because that one we were mainly just covering um, his arrest and kind of the nuances of what did the officer, the undercover officer actually say and all of that. So it probably didn't come across to him as being too negative. Um, and I did see him like, I think I remember him commenting below the, one of the block digest tweets about that episode, but definitely after that, um, like not only on the show, but on Twitter, we were like sharing screenshots of tweets that he had made where he was claiming that he was going to spy on people in Bitcoin and, uh, that he had done work with, you know, various government agencies in the U S and taught them how to use Bitcoin or how to surveil Bitcoin, which was really creepy. Um, who knows whether any of that was ever true, but he was clearly a person who was disturbed and uh you know it's unfortunate that even when it was very obvious to a bunch of people that this there was something wrong with this project there were still people in bitcoin relatively influential um who were i mean i i wouldn't fault anyone for supporting him on the basis that they thought the the drug related charge the initial money laundering related charge because it was tied in with marijuana maybe they felt that was worth supporting because that would set a bad precedent in relation to bitcoin i don't know if i really agree with that but i could see someone doing that but for a person who is supporting him in that way to not make it absolutely clear to everyone that he had a history of soliciting donations soliciting loans and not repaying those and to support a person like that and not make, not make it absolutely clear, hey, you know, I'm doing this in my personal capacity, but do not donate to this person because they have a history of, you know, not being honest and even being aggressive when people tried to, you know, seek some kind of, you know, dispute resolution. Like that should have been made absolutely clear from the beginning. And a number of people did not do that. And that's why I'm disappointed in how certain people handled that. Don't forget his ASIC uh, innovation, guys. We're just going to build all the ASICs in Minecraft, and then everybody can mine without burning electricity and save the environment because oh. physics doesn't exist. Yeah, that's where if you were really like 
I, that's where we were kind of in the craziness of 2017 when all that stuff was going down. And yeah, just obvious, like people were throwing money in all different kinds of directions. And this just cropped up because if you did a little bit of investigative work, like just, just go to Morgan's YouTube channel and just check out what he's doing. You know, I mean, like things were, yeah, I mean, like there was some weird tweets and definitely some weird activity to be worried about as far as what, like what was going on in his background. So yeah, that was a crazy time. And I guess people were just happy to throw around some of those coins. All right. So I guess, uh, what do we got next, Janine? Another, uh, your shitty deeds come home to roost story. Yes. Uh, it seems that we're finally getting to the final stages of the whole one coin scam. So the United States attorney's office for the Southern district of New York announced on the same day, actually that Morgan raccoons, um, that article about him was published that they had arrested and charged the leaders of the OneCoin International Pyramid Scheme, which was started in 2014 by two Bulgarian siblings who reportedly gathered more than $3 billion in sales revenue from the whole OneCoin scam between 2014 and 2016 alone. And the report from the attorney's office says that the arrest of Konstantin Ignatova took place two days prior to the that report being published, so March 6th. And then his sister, Ruja uh, Ignatova, who was the founder and original leader of OneCoin, has been indicted for wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering, but she is, quote, at large still. Um, so she has not been uh, arrested. As far as I can tell, I didn't look if there was an update. Maybe they had caught her in the subsequent days, but... Um, so they say in the report, the Manhattan U.S. attorney, Joffrey uh, S. Berman, said, as alleged, these defendants created a multi-billion dollar cryptocurrency company based completely on lies and deceit. They promised big returns and minimal risk. But as alleged, this business was a pyramid scheme based on smoke and mirrors more than zeros and ones. Investors were victimized while the defendants got rich. Our office has a history of successfully targeting, arresting, and convicting financial fraudsters, and this case is no different. Now, of course, you know, and that they like to highlight these type of cases is because they're probably cryptocurrency-related cases, but of course there are numerous pyramid schemes worth multi-billion dollar you know, valuations that are still ongoing and have not been taken down. So just be aware of that. Um, they are very selective in what they choose to focus on. Anyway, further down, uh, the report says the investigation has revealed that Ignatova and her co-founder conceived of and built the OneCoin business, fully intending to use it to defraud investors. For example, in one email between Ignatova and her co-founder, she described her thoughts on the exit strategy for OneCoin. And the first option that Ignatova listed was take the money and run and blame someone else for this. Uh, there was also a guy from Florida named Mark Scott who was charged with one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. Um, I think that was, I don't know how long he was been involved, but they described an incident where he was actually in Vegas uh, last year. I think it was last year where he was meeting with OneCoin um people like investors and such and they were saying like you know what's going to happen and he was saying if you know if you have an exit strategy then you don't know what this project is about and all of that and it's like well yes you don't know what this project is about because the exit strategy is the strategy 
Um, so he was charged with one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. Uh, Constantine and Mark Scott, this guy, have maximum sentences of 20 years, while Ruja is obviously still at large, but she'll apparently face a maximum sentence of 25 years. Rocked! And I will say once again, I am not a fan of the government. I am not a fan of many of the completely insane, unethical shit that law enforcement does. But you know what? Sometimes even a fucking asshole does a good thing and even a retard does something right. So rot in hell, you scamming piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, it's funny to even just hear the name OneCoin and Ruja and all that again. It's like, yeah, just a throwback. But yeah, I mean, some of this stuff is like it's getting kind of eliminated. I'm just sitting here thinking about, okay, so BitConnect got taken down. OneCoin got taken down. What's the next one of those where it's just so blatant that it's like a ridiculous everybody is just jumping on stage and saying like, we're going to make money, invest. I'm trying to think of what's the next one. I can't. Wayne Vaughn, he's going to get wrecked for Wayne Chain. <laughs> Ripple? That's what I would think. It was either Ripple or BSV or Bcash. It's between those three, I think. It's like a trilogy. And they're just, but they're not as crazy because those, those were crazy where it was just people yelling and like, we're going to make money. These are just a little. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be amazing that, you know, someone like, I'm not going to say his name, but I think you'll all know who I'm talking about. Wouldn't it be amazing that a guy who became famous for calling out his employer for operating like an account fraud scheme would then be caught in his own um, scheme? Yeah, it wouldn't be too surprising with this space. Mm-hmm. All righty. So we got any more input on uh, the scammers? Nope. All righty then. Uh, I guess let's slide along into the next one. Trezor. Back in the news to fix two previous vulnerabilities and a new one that had not been disclosed yet with a new firmware update. And before I go into these, I really have to say this, like no hardware device can be 100% airtight in terms of attacks by somebody who physically has the device, but they can be way more secure than a treasure by actually using secure elements. So, like, it, it really boggles my mind at this point how this wallet is the most popular hardware wallet out there when it's literally the least secure out of all of the hardware wallets out there. It boggles my fucking mind. And, yeah, it, it's, it's fine if you're not actually losing physical possession of it. But in the case you do... A Trezor is going to get cracked way quicker than the other devices out there. So let's dive okay. into these. Well, wait a second. So I think you should mention there is a very specific reason why Trezor doesn't use a secure element. And they've mentioned this a number of times, which is that if they were to use the secure element in a way that it would be useful, they would be part of an NDA 
with obviously Intel and they would not, if there were any problems with it, be able to talk about that. And obviously it's not open uh, source code, which means that they could not continue to make the claim that their device is based, it's they're one, trying to make it as the hardware and stuff as open as possible. So they're doing it for a very specific reason. That, multiple responses to that. Intel is absolutely not the only company out there that creates secure elements. You can fucking, leverage your position as a producer and it has been done in the past to open source these things and three to claim that they're not open source or accessible is completely a lie there are multiple specs and code instances for these kinds of chips floating around illegally and it's literally as simple as sign an nda to get access to it yourself yeah. so yes there are barriers there are barriers to get access to it there are huge issues with with hardware. The secure hardware is not open source, and 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 this seems to be the consensus in in the developer community. So I'm I'm not sure that's that's fair to say that. It absolutely is because, like I said, there have been manufacturers of things that leveraged to make things open, and they absolutely are accessible. You can find all of this information floating around in a legal gray area, and you can also approach a company and sign an NDA to get direct access from them yourself. So yes, while there are barriers to getting access to that information, it is a complete lie to say it is completely inaccessible. What, what information are you talking about? The, the actual like components. deep specs of a device and the firmware running. Yeah, I didn't say it was completely inaccessible, but the NDA presents a barrier because it's not like Trezor can share that source code with their users. They may have an NDA, they may be able to see the source code, but that's not something that users can self-verify. That's the point. That and no, just, be, that just is because my they can find in just responding because... yes, they can. They can go, there are steps you have to take to do so, but you absolutely can. But I can do so many things too in programming, but programming is developing is all about compromises. I cannot go down and do stuff in assembly. That's that's the compromise of Bitcoin core developers. They go down so so low level. They they do stuff in 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 very low level things, but they don't go down for assembly, which which where your logic leads, right? It's it's the same for hardware. It's like, how low are you going to go? You you have to set set something because otherwise it's just not shit just doesn't get done. Dude, the, the point is this is accessible through routes and it does offer more security against physical attacks. But to actually get into these exploits, the, the first one was a side channel attack on the pin to unlock the device. So all of the code was airtight in this and functioning correctly. But the problem was that you could actually try multiple um, selected incorrect pins and monitor the, the power consumption of the actual device 
and going through 10 different pins monitoring the activity on the device, <clears throat> you would be able to compute the six most probable pins. And the, the way the device is set up is after 16 incorrect pins, it will wipe itself. So there is a, a very decent chance in doing this that one of those um, pins that you compute would be the accurate pin entered before the device actually goes and resets itself. <clears throat> and so this is pretty much something that is a risk with pretty much any kind of device that is going through specific computations that are unique based on the input. You can actually analyze the electrical activity and try to figure out what it's actually doing. And so <clears throat> the way that they actually fixed this was alter the way that the pin is used to actually access this secret information stored on the device. And instead of actually going through and trying unique pins, what they simply do now is derive a key from the pin, which is used to encrypt the secret information. And in this way, whenever you enter a pin, instead of going through a cycle of unique um, operations that can be differentiated, it's simply taking the pin, hashing for the key, and then just attempting to decrypt the information. And then that decryption operation either succeeds or fails. So in doing this, the operations um, at a, a low level <clears throat> are pretty much identical no matter what pin is entered. And so <clears throat> trying to enter um, unique pins does not give any kind of electrical indication of what's going on because no matter what the input, it's going through the exact same series of computations every time. And so they were able to actually just completely deal with this bug with that slight architecture change. The next bug was the uh, wallet fail um, implementation displayed at the uh, 35C3 um, Chaos Communication Congress last year. <clears throat> and so this was actually a glitch attack that pretty much um, allowed you to interrupt a firmware upgrade process and alter the uh, read protection status on the RAM of the device because during a firmware upgrade, it effectively would pull things from the flash memory and dump your word seed and everything into the RAM while it went through the um, firmware upgrade. And then if the firmware upgrade failed, the idea was it would wipe the RAM and all of the key secrets and preserve them. But this glitch attack allowed you to effectively glitch the device in the middle of this firmware upgrade and dump all of your key information directly out of the RAM. Although this did require cracking open the enclosure and pretty much making it blatantly obvious that your device had been tampered with. Now, the way that they fixed this was effectively completely alter the way that firmware updates are processed. And now instead of moving information into the RAM and dumping the firmware directly into the flash while the secrets have been removed, they now are pretty much hashing chunks of the firmware and then including a header 
that is signed in the update. So what will happen is the device will take the header, including all of the hashes of different chunks of the firmware, which is signed with the factory key, and then take the firmware chunk by chunk into the RAM and ensure that the hashes match what's in the provided header and piecemeal move it into the flash and perform the upgrade. And the device no longer removes the mnemonic information and puts it in the RAM. It is pretty much isolated in the flash through the entire firmware upgrade process at this time. And the last one was effectively something building on the wallet fail um, exploit that was shown at the uh, Chaos Congress. And effectively is a, a glitch attack that does not require actually tampering with the enclosure. So this is something that can be performed without cracking the device open. And effectively, um, what happened is there is a limitation on the size of data that can be pushed back out through the USB port that is enforced through descriptor limitations. And what this attack does is effectively it can use the uh, Windows uh, Microsoft standard for USB descriptor requests to request information be dumped in excess of the allowed size. And because th that relevant information is stored before the mnemonic data in the memory page layout, you could effectively glitch the device while it's going through the descriptor length check. And if you're able to interrupt that um, on a hardware level while it's going through that check, it will jump back to the data request and dump out information in excess of what it's supposed to, which will go down through the memory table and actually dump the mnemonic seeds. And there were a few different ways to fix this. Um, Pretty much implementing uh, new limitations on outgoing data packet sizes, as well as introducing a um, new rule in the memory protection unit, which pretty much creates a non-readable block of memory in the memory table before the mnemonic seeds are actually stored. And so if you were attempt to perform this attack now, even if you were successfully able to glitch the device, it would read past into the non-readable block of memory and then fail. And so you would not be able to extract the, um, the secret information through this glitch anymore, at least um, anywhere near as simply as this previous exploit, which would take only a few hours with the required equipment to do so. And so pretty much all of these have been fixed in the 1.8.0 uh, firmware update. And despite these issues pretty much only being a problem in the Trezor 1 model, they have included all of these firmware updates in the Model T um, updates as well, just to mitigate these issues if ways were found to exploit this uh, in the future with that device as well. All right, man. So it sounds like it's all patched up, but uh, what do you say, man? What should we be all right with a Trezor? Definitely, you know, worried about secure elements for Ledger, cold card, air gap machine. Should we be creating our new, our own hardware wallet with Raspberries? Like, what should we? Be I doing? use a cold card, 
And honestly, like the issue is it's, it's fine if it's not physically compromised. But if somebody physically gets access to that device, it is going to be much easier to try to exploit it in a device without a secure element versus one with it. And ultimately, I think given the fact that pretty much most of the risk in actually having a hardware device compromised is somebody actually physically stealing it, I think it's incredibly foolish to not get a device that has a higher degree of security in that kind of attack, personally. I mean, I agree that with the way that the device is built, that is the biggest risk in terms of what's the easiest way to compromise it would obviously be a physical attack. And that's the case with a lot of hardware wallets and they vary in terms of being able to protect against that. But in terms of how hardware wallets, including the Trezor, are designed, they are designed to reduce the risk of you know, people who would normally just be storing their keys on a regular general purpose, like laptop or desktop device, which they have pretty much done very effectively with very little issues. And almost all of the vulnerabilities that have come out have been related to physical attacks. And that doesn't really, I think, surprise anyone because their main concern is protecting you know, what happens, what data is transmitted between a potentially compromised general purpose device like a laptop and this hardware device. And they've done that mostly effectively. Um, and obviously the cold card makes different trade-offs that are, I would agree that that's definitely better um, to Trezor in terms of protecting against physical attacks. But I wouldn't make the claim that they are the least secure hardware wallet just because they don't use a secure element be because they made that decision very purposefully. They, they absolutely are. Like they have had more exploits that can extract key information than any other wallet out there. And they happen on an almost regular basis. It, it, like it is literally almost every six months an exploit is found that would allow you to extract the keys if you have physical access to a device. Yes, there are there are reports of these vulnerabilities that are published regularly, but that doesn't mean that vulnerabilities aren't being found in other hardware wallets and just not being published as we have found with a certain other hardware wallet that just has a tendency to not want to be transparent about that. If things were patched or fixed in a patch, yes, they might not be directly published and acknowledged by a producer, but they will eventually come out. And ultimately there is just, it is undeniable that there are way more exploits that have been discovered and publicly came out for Trezor than the other hardware wallets. And I mean, again, like I said, as long as the device is not physically lost, yes, they're fine for use, but physical theft and physical attack methods are going to be how somebody comes after your hardware yeah, it's definitely a hard thing to say. Like, what's the, I mean, you know, the best option for you, it's all dependent upon what your level of security needs to be and, you know, how competent you are in the system. Because, uh, you know, some people, this is just the best they could do because, you know, they don't, they worry about using a cold card or they worry about Glacier protocols and losing it or, you know, it's just a weird level of scale as far as how important and how secure you need to be on all this. All right, with there any more comments, we can go into some of this uh, regulatory stuff. Go for it. 
All right. We were talking about the Quadriga stuff earlier and some of this craziness going on with uh, the way that this uh, exchange was run. So shortly after we ended the show on Wednesday, some news broke from our friend Kyle Torpy. He has multiple confirmed sources that users of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have received an extensive questionnaire from the CRA, the CRA, Canadian Regulatory Authority. The questionnaire is 13 pages long and has 54 questions with another 50 sub-questions that dig deep into anyone's personal experience with crypto since their history in the space began. It's a really invasive questionnaire that really just exemplifies a terrible regulatory approach to an emerging market. If everyone in Canada that is involved in Bitcoin completes this questionnaire, it will give the CRA a detailed insight into people's position in the space. It covers all your potential history in mining, merchant services, mixing services, ATMs, ICOs, assets, wallets, and it asks for great detail in all these subjects and more. When the CRA was asked for a response to these questions, they said, quote, the Canadian Revenue Agency understands that a vast majority of middle-class Canadians pay their fair share, but it remains committed to ensuring that without exception, every taxpayer abides by the same tax laws. As a world-class tax administration, the CRA is also committed to adapting its administration to keep pace with evolving global services and products and making key investments to effectively address the new ways of doing business in the global economy. The CRA Oh, yeah. In order to make this is still the quote in order to make good on these commitments, the CRA established a dedicated cryptocurrency unit in 2017 to build intelligence and conduct audits focused on risk related to cryptocurrencies. This unit has enhanced the CRA's ability to monitor and enforce compliance in areas of emerging risk, including the cryptocurrency cryptocurrency space. There are currently over 60 active audits related to cryptocurrency. The CRA's enhanced efforts in this space stem directly from its broader underground economy strategy, which includes a commitment to monitor emerging platforms and new business models with a special focus on the sharing economy and digital currencies. Close quote. All right. Sorry. I just like grabbed a big chunk of that statement. So um, now the amount of questions asked for address for addresses related to all your activities, including ones you sent Bitcoin to, really won't help them identify who has which coins. I mean, that address might have been a paper wallet or an open dime. Maybe, you know, you lost the private keys in a computer fire or a boating accident, or maybe somebody compromised your tracer like we just talked about. Also, Francis Poulier points out correctly that we could send over millions of addresses using mnemonic seeds to generate new addresses and just overload these guys with spam on these addresses. Like, it's, it's really kind of absurd. Like, what's the bottom line that they're going after on all this but this whole story got a little heat before the release whenever uh when the cra project oversight director jared adams quoted a tweet from francis explaining how to purchase bitcoin in canada without using a bank account the director simply said duly noted and then proceeded to duly note his company the uh francis's company's website explaining ways to avoid your bank account from being closed from using Bitcoin, which led to his assumption of money laundering with a tweet just saying washingmachine.gif. Now with this series of tweets and this invasive questionnaire, it has people in the US worried something similar might get handed down from the IRS. 
this story broke before my meetup this past Thursday, and it took over part of the discussion. Rightfully, we discussed how this regulatory approach is going to scare away any potential new crypto business that might have been thinking of doing their work there from Canada. Also, as someone as some have speculated in the comments to this story, it could actually encourage those before who didn't know about the possibilities with crypto to take that route. There is a link in the show notes to a recent story breaking about another leak of banking documents similar to the Panama Papers that covers, quote, snow laundering, where they cover how every year billions of dollars gets routed through Canadian registered shell companies as a favorite mechanism for cleaning money through traditional institutions. So it's an upsetting development in Canada to see everyone having to participate in this questionnaire. I'd honestly see if there could be a movement to protest it and see if they could push back against the CRA on this amount of information. I'm not sure how much pull they actually have in the country or what they could lead to or what this could lead to. But for sure, if this goes unchecked, Bitcoin business in Canada will suffer from this uh, heavy handed approach. And um, like we were saying, as far as the regular like the this regulate regulated aspects of the space right now in Canada, as far as like Quadriga CX possibly just being working with regulators and they still had all this stuff wrong. I mean, this is where we were saying, like, if we don't come up with best practices, we could get some sort of heavy handed approach like this. I think with the IRS um, in the U.S., we might, uh, you know, they might be not. I don't think they could actually just go for this level of questions. I mean, it was it's deep. I mean, the, there's a link in the show notes to the questionnaire and uh, it's yeah, it's the scribe. The see the scribe D link, and uh, yeah, if you got time, it takes about 20 minutes just to read through the questions, and you could kind of get a picture of like they want to know everything about anything since you started working in this space. So, do you guys have any comment on this uh stuff being handed down? Yes, I have yeah. one related comment to it. <clears throat> the Lib Bitcoin creator Eric Wuskill said, uh go break the law it's black market money yeah well i'm gonna take a less extreme uh critique with this like this this is just not a viable like way to approach this at all like one i mean there is no way that this leads anywhere except cross-referencing records on exchanges with kyc data to double check this information so like that that's like that's going to happen and then ultimately th th there is no way to prove you don't still have control of coins if i buy coins on coinbase and i send them to you rick like there is absolutely nothing that can prove i don't still have those coins i can't prove that i don't have a private key or control over an address even if you claim to prove that you have them instead of me the, the, there's no way to prove that i don't also have control over those like the, 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 it's the, this is just a clusterfuck of like try to prove a negative like it, it is absolutely not a viable way to move forward with this kind of shit and, and not to mention just you have sorry? to make you have to make sure you can prove it you have to write down everything but you can't like if what? i and recorded buying a coin and I send it to somebody else. There is no way at all ever that I can prove I don't have control of those coins. There's no, 
and which address is you own. But that that doesn't prove that I don't own something. Like yeah. there's no way I can prove to somebody that I don't have a specific private key. I can't do that. That is literally impossible. It, it's crazy. It's it's just crazy. I have no words for it. Mm -hmm. And like it's just this is not something that is like this is going to go forward, and it's either going to fizzle out and go nowhere, or it's going to create a legal situation where somebody is assumed guilty and has to prove their innocence. And that is completely in contradiction with the entire ideological foundation of Western legal systems. Like the, the, those are the only two directions this is going to go. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the most upsetting ways that the questionnaire is being asked. It's just like assuming that, you know, if you're in this space, you're doing something criminal and uh, they want to figure out what's going on and you're guilty until you prove innocent by explaining everything about anything that got you in as far as like the first money you spent, where you spent your coins. You know, I mean, the mixing services, all these different things, aspects of the space, like I say, 54 different questions with 50 sub questions over 13 pages. I mean. It's extensive. I like don't even have time. We don't have time to list these questions and how invasive they are. You guys can read through them. And for sure, it's uh, it just doesn't even really add up to something that we can really prove in a court of law. It's just it's just putting people's information further at risk. It's absolutely a, it looks like a gross overreach of somebody trying to figure out one way to regulate this space. And I mean, whoever this uh, Jared guy is, this director of the CRA, like uh, he needs to get a handle on it. I was looking at his tweets through this and I mean, he's been more interested in AI than anything up until just recently. And I'm kind of curious if it's maybe that Quadriga CX situation that's got them moving this quick, fast, in a hurry. I'm not sure, but it's a possibility. This, this is going to get challenged in court. Like this is going to, this is a insane overreach of things. Like this is literally like the IRS coming to you and going, we want an itemized list of absolutely everything you own from cars and houses and real estate down to a box of thumbtacks like that is absolutely insane they want to know the location where you bought the thumbtacks they want to know everything it's crazy it is crazy it's much more because if you tell them which bitcoin addresses you control then you tell them your whole fucking financial history and if bitcoin takes over the world then they can just correlate that with their other data they get so it just it's just so ridiculous yeah my, my response as a canadian would be go fuck yourself take me to court yeah for sure if i'm somebody that ran a meetup there ran a meetup up there or you know jonathan bertrand or francis Puglia, one of these guys that are doing you know major things over there to try and help move bitcoin forward in that area i would for sure be trying to set up some sort of protest against this whole thing but i mean you know like that's yeah it's a risk i mean i don't know how much pull these guys have i mean are they like the irs and they could just shut you down i don't know any more comments on this let's uh or let's just drive on to maybe a little bit better regulatory story I'm good. All right. So let's move from Canada to Colorado. Turning, yeah. So I'm happy to say that just a couple of days ago, our newly elected Governor Jared Polis has signed his first piece of legislation called the Digital Token Act. 
It's an attempt to encourage growth in the sector of blockchains and cryptocurrency here locally in Colorado. Like I've said in the past, it said before in the past, there are many companies here in Colorado working on different aspects within cryptocurrencies and building out different token projects. Well, now with this legislation, as long as they can provide a legitimate use case and they follow the rules for fundraising, they can rest easy knowing they're not breaking any laws. Colorado's Chief Information Officer, Teresa Shurik, says, quote, creating a Colorado Digital Token Act with limitations to protect consumers will enable Colorado businesses that use crypto economic systems to obtain growth capital to help expand their businesses. The cost and complexities of state securities registration can outweigh the benefits to Colorado business using crypto economic systems that seek to raise capital and create new decentralized internet platforms, close quote. So the link to the bill is in the article in the show notes. And uh, I encourage any armchair lawyers or people looking for similar legislation in other states to take a look. I was surprised to see how docu- how the document is written in pretty fairly plain English. It just uses words that is still pretty ill-defined, like I was just saying in those quotes there. I mean, they say a lot of blockchain-based technology, crypto economic systems, and our favorite word, decentralized. So it's trying to translate, it's trying to translate this, le- so I'm, tr- <laughs> sorry. So in trying to translate this legislation, it looks like you can make an ICO here in Colorado after filing a notice of intent with the state securities commissioner. And the main thing is it has to have a consumptive purpose. Once it gets the approval from the commissioner, it looks like you're allowed to have one round of fundraising and then the coins or tokens can't be moved again until they are used for their specified consumptive purpose. It sounds like this could do a good job of trying to clear out any potential blatant scams that might have wanted to set up shop here in Colorado. I'm sure it will also give the local Zcash and Ethereum community community some breathing room to know they are working in the green as long as they could provide a consumptive purpose for their coin which with all the marketing budget of those two networks i'm certain they can find an answer to that question and they'll probably get away with their initial sales not following these guidelines in some sort of fine like i said earlier the language of the bills reads rather plainly and i'd be interested to see how they handle the enforcement side of this document Words like decentralized are going to have to become better defined and these large, larger crypto economic systems are going to have to be better understood to understand potential use cases. There's a lot of ground to cover before the law takes effect here on August 2nd of this year. In the show notes, I have a second bill put forward by Colorado Representative Jack Tate, a Republican senator, and is put forward by a Republican senator, Jack Tate, Mark Caitlin, and as well as a Democratic representative, Jenny Arndt. It's uh, Senate Bill 184, and it's an attempt to use blockchain technology to create a solution for water management rights. It's very vague, very short bill that wants to create water banks to help manage water rights. And this is where I'm curious how this new law will be enforced. Will it encourage more scams based off an inability to define this terminology involved? I'm not sure if the bill is gets through if the if this bill gets through this water rights management based off of this new digital token act then it seems like it could be a major sign to bring in more scams just through these legal routes. I mean, I'm going to remain hopeful and keep working with locals here to try and help define these words 
because, uh, you know, I mean, it could get ugly if uh, politicians start figuring out a way to just come up with a consumptive token and start doing ICOs to fundraise for their political agendas. I mean, you know, it's we're going to have to watch the way it develops. I mean, for nevertheless, it should be good to help encourage just the growth of the system here. And I mean, we know the guys are working close with Wyoming and Wyoming's already got a lot of the financial aspects built out. There's a lot of developers here. They were really looking for some sort of legislation like this. I'm not really surprised this was the first thing passed by him whenever it comes to uh, the cryptocurrency space. I would I'd be anticipating looking for that Cryptocurrency Tax Fairness Act next, which was put forward in uh, 2017 and failed, where uh, we could spend up to $600 with a crypto without it being a tax taxable event. So that's what's going on right now with Colorado. A little bit of a stark contrast to Canada. So uh, what do you guys think of this, this digital token act? I think that this is not going to really fix anything because as we've seen, you can just create any kind of nonsense utility token that has a consumptive use and just fucking scam people. And I mean, like, this is clearly like, I mean, seriously, I'm just, I'm going to make a utility token for farting and I'm going to collect money. And then oopsies, the project failed and it didn't work. I didn't commit securities fraud. It just didn't work. Yeah, I know. That's where I was thinking, like, kind of just joking around in the mumble. I was like, I'm going to create a company called Decentralized and issue a token called use or usage or consumptive or something just to see if like that could pass the legal smell test. But uh, yeah, I mean, it goes into effect August 2nd. I mean, I'm sure that we're going to see these uh, Zcash guys try to properly, you know, get in line with it. Same with the Ethereum guys, like. They need to come up with their use case. I'm already thinking, I'm sure they're going to say something along the lines of like, well, Zcash is a where the technology is to be used to help develop privacy enhancing tools. And Ethereum's use is to drive a global world computer. I, you know, that's, yeah, it's still, it's pretty out there because whenever we know the facts of the situation and the way Ethereum's like just a inefficient mess at the time at right now and it's still you know open to a lot with all this forks going down right now and with zcash that whole idea of like actually trying to improve privacy just includes these different things that it, these other forces as far as hidden inflation and it just doesn't add up to a proper system these crypto crypto economic systems we're gonna see you know we'll follow it it's another five months little bit under five months before it goes live and i don't know we'll see how they handle this water rights banking bill because i mean that one is pretty blatantly stupid so let's see how they handle that one but yeah that's what's going on with regulatory stuff in the in the area so what is next going into dev taxes dev taxes all right Alrighty, are we ready for the next wave of stupid from Ethereum? Are we ready? Are we ready? All right. Yeah. So, Vitalik, non-giver of ether, uterine, is proposing that people support a community norm that the client slash wallet developers can charge a one-way fee for transactions sent through their wallet. 
and that we don't try to get around this. And we even try to create hard forks or soft forks or protocol adjustments to require this. So like, you can't get around it. You are, come on, it, you are mis misrepresenting. He's saying that people are going to get around this. I, I agree with you, this is stupid. No, no, but... no, because the last part is, and we support protocol changes to make such fees easier. Uh, easier, easier to, to implement, not, not protocol changes to enforce. Okay. Well, um, hmm. fair point, but it's still absolutely and utterly retarded. Like, here, here's a notion. If, if you want to have a wallet that, that sends or gives fees to the person who made the wallet, how about you build something that's actually worth people paying the wallet developers for? Like, I don't know, um, a mixing service? Huh? Huh? That that sound too crazy, everybody? You know, actually provide something for money you're charging is a service? Wink, wink. Nod, nod, no par. I like that idea. <laughs> I like that idea too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, this is like, this is just absurd to try and just say that yeah. like transacting normally through a wallet, you should have to pay the wallet developer. Like that's like, I'll just fork the fucking code and use it myself. Why the hell would I do that? If they're not providing some service that I need them for, that's worth me paying for. Why the fuck would I do that? And especially when you really get down to it, how, like, how much of the Ethereum supply did the Ethereum developers and foundation have at the start of this to build things? Why the fuck do they need to start charging people just to use software? Can, can I ask you something before we get into the discussion? Like, how, how did he imagine this? Do I not understand that Ethereum well? Because in Bitcoin, this community standard would be like, okay, let's just make a deal with the miners that they are going to pay out the developers. They make the transactions sweet. But in Ethereum, how would you do this without uh, thrashing the blockchain? Uh, what, what was this? You would have to thrash the blockchain, but the point, like every every wallet, like actually creates its own contract to like make the account and handle that. So like the only way you could do this is just like include in that contract, like every time you transact, the person who wrote it gets money. All right, I I have only one one thing to add to this that. Basically, what he's proposing is wallet fingerprinting, which I spent a lot of time yep. to, to avoid. But this is just wallet fingerprinting. <laughs> That's a damn good point. So not only is it nonsensical, not only does it really make no economic sense, it completely destroys privacy. So that was a subtle hint at Vitalik clapping, I mean, by the way, for those who didn't get it. 
Yeah, this is uh, pretty crazy. I mean, I'm always kind of shocked the way Ethereum tries to say they don't compete with Bitcoin, yet they yell about how they're going to be worth more than Bitcoin and how they just they just wreck their economic policy or any sense of security with the way that they move forward with their development. I mean, like, uh, maybe this is just Vitalik. He's trying to exit the system as much as possible. He's like, well, how are we going to keep developers going if there's not some foundation that has money to fund this development well we'll just i don't know we'll create a practice where everybody that makes a wallet they charge like an internal fee or something i'm and they reduce their block reward they're they're just doing things that just don't add up to like any sort of secure economic system and i'm really curious as to what the hell i think every different ethereum developer would probably have a different use case for what they're building out there like without a solid answer i mean it's just getting ridiculous. Um, so I'm not too surprised to see Vitalik tweet something like this, especially with some of his crazy tweets in the past. You know, it was just like for normal people like us, when we get drunk, we figure out with our friends, we should open a bar, right? He's like, okay, I'm just tweet. We should tax the people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, another nightmare. I don't know why that ecosystem is just continues to roll on but it's a large network a lot of funding marketing and so they're always spitballing ideas to get things to stick i don't know if this one will though mm -hmm. it's 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 not like it it's it's not but in the interest of time though uh, about 25 minutes left uh well, what what's going on in bitcoin developer land uh no so Bitcoin G added segregated witness a couple of yeah a month month ago two months ago in Wasabi we, we are getting a lot of a uh, lot of requests for people that they can only send to batch thirty two addresses. Well, yeah, that's not how the request goes, but the request comes like, hey, the, uh, my wallet, my exchange, my whatever says that. Uh, uh, I, I, it's an invalid address. Uh, what's what's going on, right? So so we wanted to contribute to to things, and we were checking up other implementations. And Bitcoin J is one of the library that uh, probably a decent percentage of the ecosystem is using. And actually, we figured out Bitcoin J implemented segregated witness uh, batch thirty two sendability but uh, they did not release for one year already. So anyway, now they implemented, they added a full seg with support, which is very, let's just not trash the developer because Bitcoin G is a terribly complex library, a very old library and, and, and properly implementing this is not that easy. So anyway, they finally merged it after one year of, first uh, pull requests uh, they finally merged the full segregated witness integration into bitcoin j and now we can and now they released uh, and now the softwares who are using uh, bitcoin j are going to be able to send to batch 32 and if they want they can even make their wallet uh, segregated witness wallet. Uh, that's up to the software. 
what software I found uh, using this. Uh, well, Samurai was using this, but Samurai forked it, and they they just do their own stuff, so they don't contribute back or or yeah, so they don't use Bitcoin J. They use a fork of it, their own fork. Uh, other one was Bitcoin Wallet. You might have heard about that. That was actually the first Bitcoin Wallet. I so the name of the wallet is Bitcoin Wallet. <laughs> okay, it's an Android wallet. That's that one. I think a lot of people are using. So that's that's good. Uh, and Bisk, Bisk is. I think it's gonna take for like half a year for them. But uh, anyway, it's, now they will do that. So that's nice and. Probably a lot of exchanges because Java is a very common language. Probably a lot of exchanges are using Java. So fingers crossed. And let's see the segregated witness adoption, how it will how it will affect the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You know, that was actually seriously disappointing to me when Samurai forked it and people did not migrate over and start supporting that given how fucking long it took. And I mean, like, from my understanding, like, a large part of why they didn't implement it for over a year is just because the, the person who's maintaining Bitcoin J is pretty much a big blocker and just didn't care about it. Like, didn't care that the library he's maintaining, which is so widely used in the ecosystem, was lagging ridiculously behind, like, what was actually available technically. And then on top of that, like you, you have the Samurai alternative and all of the wallets using Bitcoin J just use the lack of support in the official library as an excuse to not implement things. Like it's, it's really fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I still disagree with you. I don't even know where to start. So <laughs> I think the guy who is maintaining so Bitcoin J history, it was started by Mike Hearn, who all, we all know who he was, and it was taken over by Andres Schildbeck, who is actually the, the writer yeah. of the Bitcoin wallet. Anyway, uh, what, what I was looking at, because I looked at all the GitHub issues, pull requests, that what's going on, uh, was trying to find any kind of... Uh, uh, like like shit on him because, but there was none. I mean, it's it's really just a very very complex library, and he just didn't want it to. Like some people came, drop a, I don't know, few thousand lines of code, and he just didn't want it to merge it without uh, without properly taking care. I mean, you can. He's he's not he's not being paid. He's he cares about the code quality, and he was the one at the end who properly implemented it. It wasn't Nicola Dorier who made the first PR. It wasn't Green Address. It wasn't Lawrence from Blockstream who made the second big PR. It was he who, who succeeded to implement it properly with a bunch of tests and everything. So I, 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 I would like if if a library developer a library I'm using is that uh, that well, <clears throat> well no, but here, here's my point precautious, precautious. somebody took that code base and implemented all of this stuff almost a year ago how is that work not being done 
yeah, that's the they basis do. to build on. No, no. So Samurai is not implement. Samurai only implements the stuff that they care about, right? What it doesn't fail in their software. But Bitcoin J is a huge, huge library with Bloom filtering, SPV wallet stuff, with a bunch of other components that Samurai doesn't care about. And like half implementations, right? They, they don't. Samurai only cares about what is inside their wallet, but he has to care about everything what's inside the library and that's why it matters no but the the, the address format and and script implementation was done by samurai that is a huge chunk of the work that is the core of it and the rest of it and is pretty much taking really, all the other Peter Willey in every language, and then he really segregated witness, and that's just a very, very small part of the work. How do you handle paths? Dude, like, I just completely disagree. And, like, I know for a fact that Andreas is a big blocker and that a huge part of the delay was definitely that. I mean, one of the big things that turned me off from this library is during the entire 2X incident, he went out of his way to sneak in 2X seed nodes and tried to hide that from everybody, including it in a default, which would have pushed all of the people using anything built on Bitcoin J onto the 2X chain if the miners actually supported it and went through with it. Like he is a malicious person. Oh, okay. He has taken uh, malicious blacker, but I've read an article uh, from actually Aaron did that article in Bitcoin magazine. He was interviewing him and he said segregated witness is great. And that was in 2016. And he was not trashing segment, but in fact, hyping it. And that was the article about I can send it to you. But uh, actions speak louder than words. And his actions were intentionally sneaking in code, trying to push SPV wallets onto a malicious chain without giving users choice. Yeah, yeah. and his action was to build a stable thing with a bunch of tests that's not going to fail for every second user of that library. So actions speak louder than words. I mean, I know you want everything for tomorrow, but it just, you know, developer time, especially free developer time, that's you're not getting paid. It's, it's just uh, not that, not how that works, you know. One year implementing such complex changes, I think that's great. Yeah, I guess we can just agree that it's good that it's updated now and uh, everything's, you know, ready for SegWit. And uh, that's a great thing. But, you know, I can imagine that, yeah, you know, anybody that was kind of indecisive about what to do with SegWit because there was, you know, probably a good chunk of people there in the middle. And, uh, you know, they wanted to, I guess, wait and see and then, you know, properly test and make sure everything got built out without any bugs or worries. I mean, we know there was a few little issues there between uh, the release of SegWit and now. And so, you know, I, I mean, like, yeah, it's upsetting it took that long. It's real upsetting to hear that he put in that 2X mnemonic seed, but... You know, it's it's good to go now. So I guess he sort of uh, found a way where it's like he's kind of more sure now that that's this is the proper way to do things. Well, I'm like end of the line. I'm never gonna trust him again. Like, period. 
I get it. But 14 minutes left, though, so we're going to move along. Uh, next up is a little bit of surprising news uh, two days ago from Fidelity. Apparently, uh, their system quietly went live without any public announcement. So for the past few months now, people have actually been using this to execute trades and store their coins. And I mean, for those who don't remember, their initial product is effectively just a, a mechanism to handle purchases for large players by spreading those orders out between other exchanges with Fidelity effectively acting as a person who takes an order from a customer and then fills it across a number of different exchanges to kind of spread the liquidity all over the place. And they have had a number of different wealthy families, uh, hedge funds and endowment funds um, slowly start using this over the past few months. And they've kind of been very selective in who they're bringing on board when like for instance some customers have been using it since january some have just been introduced onto the platform this month and they're kind of slowly going to be bringing in uh, more users over the the rest of this year in a kind of stagnated way but one of the most interesting things about this, I think, is kind of their feedback from potential users who they've actively been going around serving. And pretty much 22% um, of the, the institutions, the hedge funds, families, pensions, and so on, that they have um, contacted, 22% already have some cryptocurrencies. And those who already do are expecting to double their allocation into the ecosystem over the next five years. So that, that is a pretty big percentage of institutional players already in this ecosystem and looking to continue expanding their, their positions in the ecosystem. And the bear market for the last year has pretty much had no effect at all on their interest. Like they're just as interested in allocating funds into the space as they were and even some more so than during the all-time highs during early 2018 and even some of the people who are not currently holding things are interested in learning more and they seem to have found like a, a correlation between those who actually have a decent understanding of the space already are those who are already invested in, in the ecosystem. So they, it's a, a clear trend based on their inquiries that those who understand Bitcoin at a deeper level are those already invested. And there are still a large amount of people who are still interested in continuing to learn about the ecosystem. Yeah, these guys, uh, they always, you know, they took the LN torch and they seem to be at the top of their game as far as like uh, people that are coming from the traditional area of the space, uh, institutions and where they're trying to translate it over to Bitcoin and crypto. They just, uh, they seem to be building things out quietly in the background and it's been working out for them. And I guess it was all sort of part of a beta that has gone live quietly. That's it's a good thing. I mean, you know, I'm sure there'll be a lots of people that are going to try and jump into this service and we'll see who 
takes advantage of that now that it's launched. I mean, uh, between them and TD Ameritrade, they seem to be the two that are really kind of making pushes for the space from the institutions. I mean, we know that there's some bigger things going on in the background with, uh, you know, backed and all these sorts of uh, contracts that are going on with Wall Street. But these uh, these guys that were made for more of the retail side and some institutional players that just because uh, Fidelity and TD Ameritrade, they're both pretty much like open access compared to Wall Street and everything. So, yeah, looks like they're doing good things. Mm -hmm. Any more input on this before we move along? Probably going to wind up smashing the next two stories into one thing. Let's go for it. All righty. So, former employee main um, from the Copernicus project, which was a Bcash uh, centered team within the company mostly trying to kind of boost ecosystem development for Bcash and working on the wormhole uh, counterparty-like protocol for Bcash, uh, which were all let go, are going to be forming a new company that is looking to provide uh, custody OTC trading and uh, lending features. And some of the uh, the rumors in, in this this coverage of this are indicating that Jihan Wu is not going to have any involvement in this right now, but a Bitmain shareholder is going to be heading this company, and that there is potential that Jihan Wu might move over and take charge of this company uh, at a later date. But the Bitmain shareholder, uh, Yusheng Yi, is going to take the role of CEO as it's initially formed. And I think that this, this could potentially be the company that um, I think Crypto Venus uh, stated a while ago that Jihan is going to be leaving to become involved with but given the fact that that initial assertion was really just repeated rumors without any kind of substantiation it's not really clear but i i would say that given what this company is going to claim to concentrate on these are exactly the kinds of things that bcash is totally failing for like the, the lack of support, lack of demand on OTC, like market infrastructure to build up and incentivize liquidity. And it would really make sense that this is the type of stuff that they would concentrate on in order to try and stop Bcash from continue or continuing to just flounder around aimlessly. But in other news related to Bitmain, um, Samson Mao yesterday tweeted out a, a little bit of an update going on with the the company and um, more lawsuits are being filed from um, assembly uh, component production and repair companies that are being left unpaid and pretty much hit the point of they're just going to sue bitmain for and as well, another interesting fact is that apparently the S15s 
that Bitmain recently produced were sold at 30% below cost. And there were only around a thousand of them made. So if, if this is accurate, that, that, that literally beyond the shadow of a doubt confirms that the entire announcement with the S15 was nothing but a PR stunt, nothing but an attempt to create optics that look favorable given just how horrible their financial situation is and how badly their IPO bid is going for them. And hysterically, the, the last part that is really just hilarious is the, the, the seven nanometer chip fabs cost three times as much as 16 nanometer chip fabs. And remember, the company Byteway, started by their former engineer who designed the S9, has a 16 nanometer rig that is marginally less efficient than Bitmain's seven nanometer chips. So a third of the cost for an insignificant difference in efficiency. But that, that cost is not the only problem that they're facing because the entire market dynamics for seven nanometer chip fabrication is just shifting completely against ASIC manufacturing right now with pretty much all of the capacity TSMC has being bought up by Apple, Qualcomm, Huawei, NVIDIA, AMD, all of the major conventional um, computing hardware companies. And there are issues going on with other companies capable of seven nanometer fabrication as well. Uh, AMD specifically had to switch to TSMC, or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, to TSMC because global foundries who they were using closed their seven nanometer fab plants. And Qualcomm had to switch from Samsung due to a lack of capacity to TSMC. So ultimately, even if they are able to somehow pull money out of a hat to pay for seven nanometer fabrication at three times the cost of 16 nanometers to be in any way competitive with new companies, there just is not the capacity available from anybody capable of actually fabbing it to produce it. So like, like they're, they're literally completely fucked. They're not able to pay their bills as far as actually manufacturing things. The S15 was literally nothing but a 1000 machine run for PR purposes. And they do not have any like production capacity available at any of the foundries they use to even make any more seven nanometer chips for the rest of the year. Cause it's all being used by big tech giants for conventional products. Like they are absolutely, utterly, completely fucked. <laughs> well, I wonder if that IPO is going to go through, man. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's pretty crazy how bad the news has been over there. And yeah, it looks like that press release was just to try and clean up some good PR during all this uh, bad news. And yeah, it's hard to say what's going to happen with Bitmain. I mean, you know, all that big investment in the Bcash and, you know, the S15 is not working out. And I imagine they, you know, they build these things out on loans to make sure that they're like based off of predicted sales. And I mean, if sales were 30% of what they were expected to be, then yeah, I could imagine they're having trouble paying people back. And 
oof, the lawsuits just keep piling up. And, you know, this idea of like, what are you going to do with all this stack of Bcash? I guess you better start a company that tries to build it up. I don't know. It's a <laughs> crazy situation over there. I kind of feel sorry for Jahan to see that he's got a picture of him. And I don't know what's going on. This is his buddy crying. Like it, it looks like they got some upsetting news. They're, they're getting shoved out of the company. Like they've lost their influential, like directory role. Like they're, they're not in charge of running the company anymore and they're getting shown the door. Like that's Jihan and McCree Zan, the, the two CEOs or former CEOs, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's rough stuff. If there isn't any more comment, yeah, we better rush into our next one. Cause it's a good chunk too. Uh, any better comments? Janine, you want to tell us about what's going on with uh, Chelsea Manning? Make your mother cry if you want cry. <laughs> That's not what's going on. What What is going on? Because I have seen Chelsea Manning in the news a lot lately. Yeah, so if anyone watching hasn't heard, Chelsea Manning was subpoenaed to testify in the grand jury case against WikiLeaks. And even though it's a secret hearing and many people have been trying to pretend that the subject of that grand jury is not known, we do know that the case relates to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange because the case number on her subpoena is the same one that appeared in a grand jury investigation against WikiLeaks several years ago. So we know what it's about. We don't know the precise questions. We don't know what she'll be asked. Um, but we do know that it is about the WikiLeaks case and the grand jury is secret. And they've been investigating WikiLeaks basically from the beginning for a number of years. Now, unfortunately, because she took the principled stance of not only not wanting to repeat herself in terms of providing testimony in a matter that has already taken away several years of her life irretrievably, but also not being willing to participate in a secret court system that I think is not only unconstitutional, but as she states, has historically been used to spread fear among journalists and activist groups. Uh, for this reason, on March 8th, two days ago, she walked into a secret courtroom in Alexandria, Virginia, and the senior judge, uh, Claude Hilton, ordered that she be taken into custody for contempt of court, despite her arguments of uh, first, fifth, and sixth, I think sixth amendment as well, violations. Hilton objected specifically to the fifth amendment argument on the basis that because they had offered her immunity in exchange for testifying against Assange and WikiLeaks, therefore she had no fifth amendment privilege, which is asinine because this is exactly the kind of tool that they use against people like this. A lot of people in related to WikiLeaks who were contacted to testify in this grand jury were also given immunity, but all it is is a carrot to get them to rat on their friends and basically destroy WikiLeaks. That is the intention of this. It's not about justice. And so there were very few reporters present at the building, um, the court building during the hearing but a journalist uh, among them was Ford Fisher, and he filmed an interview with Chelsea before she entered the building, as well as with her lawyers following the hearing, uh, who said that the maximum amount of time that she could be held in contempt for the duration is for the duration of the grand jury, 
or if the grand jury takes longer, no more than 18 months. It is possible that she could be charged further after that, but for now the limit is 18 months. And I, do you guys want to play the clip or should I just keep going? Uh, you want to keep going? I'll get it set up. I didn't have that ready. Yeah, so just play the, um, I think it's the first one that I have linked in the description. Um, so after it was reported that she had been taken taken into custody, the following statement was published through her Twitter account. She said, I will not comply with this or any grand jury. Imprisoning me for my refusal to answer questions only subjects me to additional punishment for my repeatedly stated ethical objections to the grand jury system. The grand jury's questions pertained to disclosures from nine years ago and took place six years after an in-depth computer forensics case in and for almost a full day about these events. I stand by my previous public test testimony. Do you have the clip? Yeah, we, we don't have a. It's not a big deal. We don't, we don't have a specific. Is it possible that you aren't walking out those doors after this hearing? Could they get you today? Yes. How would we know? If, if you walk in there and then don't come out, how will uh, we? We'll, we'll put we'll put out a statement. When is when is the hearing actually supposed? To, can you say the time? Uh, it's 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 yeah, we we don't have a. It's specific, not a big deal. We don't, we don't have a specific time. Okay. We uh, it's. Sometime in the next few hours. Thank you. All right, Appreciate thank you. It. So there were actually several of those clips, but we don't have to watch all of them. I just wanted to show one. There's a whole um short clips that he made when he was talking to her before she went to the building. Um, but yeah, so I read her statement and. Uh, so the judge ended up deciding that she was in contempt of court and she was taken into custody and she has been transferred since then to the adult detention center of Alexandria and is currently being held in a cell by herself while she is being quote classified according to staff who were standing outside of the facility during a vigil that took place yesterday. Um, so unsurprisingly, I was, pretty upset about this uh, for a number of reasons. And um, although I do feel very reassured by the way that, as you saw, even in that short clip, she conducted herself like she was very composed. And obviously no one wants to face going back to prison again, especially when she in particular was forced into solitary confinement on so many occasions. And then she was even tortured prior to her trial in various, you know, military locations before being brought to the United States and also at Quantico in the United States um, prior to being tried. And if you watch all of the videos from Ford Fisher, she appears very calm and optimistic about what she's about to do. And it, in my view, it completely rebukes the strategy of the U.S. government that 
Um, specifically, Natasha Leonard, uh, who has also been covering the case, wrote about years ago, which is that they need her to live, but to suffer as an example, as a warning to other whistleblowers. And she is completely destroying that strategy by how she's conducted herself so far. And so just to say again, no part of this case is about justice. It's about scaremongering. And even though I absolutely hate what is being done to her and what she has to deal with, her courage is so beautiful and we should be proud of her decision to stand up to not only her abusers, but to stand up to the war criminals and their enablers that she exposed over a decade ago now. And literally saying to their face, do what you want to me. I will not comply with your corrupt system. And on a related note, um, since Chelsea Manning's disclosures were about war crimes by the U.S. military, including the famous collateral murder video where a bunch of American soldiers gleefully murdered two innocent Reuters journalists and two children in cold blood and were never held responsible for that. While I was trying to deal with the news of her being once again imprisoned um, and sharing donation links to her legal funds, which you can find uh, on Twitter. And also I think I linked video description. She accepts uh, the Courage Foundation on her behalf accepts Bitcoin and also Zcash as well, in addition to various other um, fiat payment methods. Um, the I saw a report where the Trump administration uh, is apparently preparing to make demands to various countries that are hosting the U.S. military around the world and saying not only that those host countries should cover the costs of housing and feeding those military personnel, but that they should even pay a fee for the privilege of hosting them. And since one of those countries is Germany, I just wanna say, I have a much better idea. How about you all pack your fucking bags and take your entitled asses back to where you came from? Because my primary reason one of my primary reasons for leaving the United States is because I object to having the fruits of my labor pay for the military industrial complex to go around ravaging and raping so many parts of the world. So how dare you come to a place where I have tried to take refuge and so many other people from the United States have tried to take refuge and say, no, you can't escape us. You'll still have to pay for our crimes. And I'm going to say, no, fuck yourselves. Oof, yeah. Balls of steel. Oh yeah, joke and poor taste. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. But I mean, for sure, there's some strong courage there. You see the way that she's just like stand up, strong faced about this whole 18th month, 18 months in custody, and yeah, it's just crazy that there's these secret courts, secret hearings on a case number we have to we know has to do with WikiLeaks, and there's this whole background effort to coerce people to either fall in line or, you know, you know, just, yeah, just fall in line basically. And it's really hard whenever you put on that uniform and there is this huge conflict of interest where, you know, you come from, you know, if you put on that uniform, you come from a small background somewhere in the country. And whenever you get into that big piece of the machinery to where you could see some of the gears just absolutely tearing down people in ways that, you know, I mean, like we, we know, we know that people have been tortured, people have been killed, you know, through, 
you know, not just the U.S. military, but, you know, mercenary groups. And it's just been horrendous what we've done since 2001 when it comes to going around the world and trying to, quote, in the name of spreading democracy or stopping terrorism or whatever it's in quotes of. Whenever you are on the ground there and you're seeing things that go against what your country and constitution and everything says. And I mean, you took an oath that says you should stand up against enemies, foreign and domestic, to the Constitution, and you see these terrible things going on where these we're supposed to live in a, in a lawful society, and, and, and there's no laws. It's no, there's no black and white on this. It's all gray. It's a terrible thing, and, yeah, it's a good thing to see Chelsea have go in there with some, some strong courage and, uh, you know, really kind of just put the whole idea of this being a big instrument to scare people uh, uh, out of the thought pattern it's uh it's yeah it's it's awful i mean like you think when's this gonna end but it's hard to tell i mean though yeah it's it's awesome it's awful mm-hmm. that's governments for you though so i guess let us take this into final thoughts for the day uh janine you got one lined up? Um, I don't have a link to share. I just want to reiterate that um, Coinbase, you know, still dealing with the delete Coinbase stuff, and they have used to answer questions regarding when the hacking team will actually be leaving uh, Coinbase. They have directly been asked by Breaker Mag, to, like a series, uh, I think it was five questions total, they actually said like not answering these questions, even though they did apparently respond to one of their writers. And so I just want to remind everyone who thinks that because Brian Armstrong did a response that that should be satisfactory, you are absolutely wrong. Nothing has changed. Sorry, one second. Uh, You guys move along with that. I need to extract a cat. (laughs) I was wondering what that was, a quick interjection. Uh, yeah, it would be uh, good to actually see some timelines on that and, uh, you know, actually get make sure that all those people are leaving and that's not really even going to be affiliated with them anymore. But, you know, like Brian, I'm sure, I don't know if he's actually going to do it. It seems like uh, they're trying to not do anything at this point because they know everything they've done since this hiring has just exacerbated the news around this situation. I wouldn't be surprised that they shut up for the next six months. <laughs> Anyway, um, hopefully Shinobi's going to wrangle that cat and come back to us with a final thought. My final thought is just uh, go out, support your local meetups. We got a meetup coming up on Tuesday. There's always every Tuesday the Denver Bitcoin and Beer meetup. Every other Thursday we got the Boulder Valley Bitcoin meetup if you're in the Colorado area. And uh, yeah, just go. If you're not in the Colorado area, go search out your local meetups and support them. All right, Milpar, you got you got a final thought for us? Yeah, I just I just have a question. That do you guys take an absolutist stance on this thing that uh, the U.S. is the police of the world and uh, they should they should not be doing that and they should get out of every country? Yes, I don't think that the U.S. should have any presence in any country that is not explicitly requested by that country without any kind of coercion on our part. Also, if it's not explicitly requested. All right. 
also if for Germany in particular, it's completely stupid because German taxpayers were the ones who were building all of the military, or at least a significant paying for a significant portion of the military bases that the U.S. currently uses in Germany. Yeah, and those military bases are pretty nice. I went to Frankfurt. I mean, like, uh, you know, yeah, that's kind of an on-the-spot question. I think, uh, yeah, I think it would be good to pull out of every major country that we weren't in, like, a heavy alliance to basically, you know, ward off uh, certain aspects of geopolitics. I mean, I'd have to think, sit down and think about it a little bit more. But for sure, we are way overextended in the way that we spread our force around this globe. Yeah, it's kind of nuanced, right? Because countries like uh, in the Middle East, there are people requesting the U.S. to be there. In fact, a lot of, lot of, uh, you don't even know what are countries there. I mean, how do they define? How about Taiwan? Uh, officially, if Taiwan is not a country because there is only one country, and that's China. And and if the U.S. would go away from that part of the world, then China would just go and get Taiwan. And I don't know. It's uh, just <clears throat> just something to think about. Yeah, that was me. All right. And one last final thought, which is both me and Rick. Uh so, speaking of defending treasure, huh? Five different attacks against the treasure being demonstrated by the Ledger team at the MIT Bitcoin Expo right now. Five. Yeah. The cold card. So, on that note, I guess that'll wrap us up for the day and we will catch you guys on Wednesday. Adios. Later, everyone.